So we just chanted together Hakuin's Song of Zazen. And we said, in going and returning, always, never leaving home, always at home. In going and returning, at all times, never leaving home. Doesn't feel like that, does it? <clears throat> We're always immersed in some form of judgment about the home, about the self, about the environment, about people around us. Not realizing, not understanding. Maybe this case will help us. This is from the Shoyoroku, case 67. The introduction. A speck of dust contains the 10,000 shapes. A single thought is endowed with the 3,000 realms. How much more so a great person crowned by heaven and standing upon earth? Or a sharp one who understands the tale when the head is mentioned? Do not disregard your very own spirit and bury your family treasure. That alone has the power to help us. Just the introduction. The main case. Attention. In the Avatamsaka Sutra, Shakyamuni Buddha says, As I now see all sentient beings everywhere, they are endowed with the Tathagata's wisdom and virtue. But because of deluded thoughts and attachments, they do not realize it. The verse. Covered like heaven, supportive like earth, making a ball, forming a mass, permeating the Dharma realm, it's boundless. Crushing the tiniest moats, it lacks an interior. Having exhausted all subtlety and minuteness, who can distinguish the pro and the con? Buddhist ancestors come to repay the debt of karmic words. Ask all teacher O of Nansen and see. Every, every person it's a single piece of vegetable. So this sutra, this koan, brings up a line from the Avatamsaka Sutra, also known as the flower ornament scripture. It's a sutra that is central to Huayan school of Buddhism. 
She was active in China between the 6th and 9th centuries. Huayan school, or the Kegon school as it is known in Japan, is focused on the aspect of interconnectedness of all things. And it illustrates it through the metaphor of Indra's net, which you may have heard about before. An intricate web that has a jewel at every meeting point. And each jewel perfectly reflecting all the other jewels. It's a metaphor to show interpenetration of the absolute and the relative or the truth of non-duality. We often hear about this truth, we chant it, we read about it, but we don't actually live by that. Or do we? What does it mean to live by that truth, the truth of non-duality? How does it manifest in one's life? Personally, what do you think it will feel like, be like? To act from an understanding of non-duality. To act from two arrows meeting in midair, a box and its lead fit perfectly. How do we live like? And these are the first words of the Buddha after his realization. That is the realization. It's how he expressed it in words. And then for the rest of his life, through his actions. So these words echo the beginning, the initial verbal teachings of the Buddha which we always have to go back to, over and over again, to clarify. I know some of you have heard this before, probably most of you. What does it mean to hear something, to truly hear something, that it penetrates to the core, to the gut, it moves you, shakes you up, because it has to do this. I was just talking to Taishin and Dokusan about how radical this realization is. Radical because it is, it feels diametrically opposing everything, everything we know, everything we trust, actually everything we care about is challenged by this understanding, or by this statement. That's why there aren't that many people practicing. And even within practitioners, that's why many don't keep up with it. It's too radical.
So the beginning, and today also, this is a beginning for us. It's the first day of our fall angle. So it's a beginning, but yet it is a beginning of a training period that has been maintained for many years, many generations before us. Many generations that expect us to not rely on their understanding, but to make it our own. Many generations that have entrusted us with, with the power, with the realization that we have what it takes. And it's been maintained for the purpose of deepening, clarifying, strengthening, for the sole purpose of waking up. I asked you, I asked us all, why are we here this morning, before we began? Why are we here? We may say, well, I'm here to awaken, but am I actually practicing based on what I'm saying? Or am I saying it because it sounds good? Am I living a life of awakening or am I waiting for it to come? So a new beginning, like any other new beginning, inevitably, inevitably, it's a step into something new with something old with layers upon layers of shields, of the known, of the storyline, history, feelings. Nobody steps into the new without some level of baggage. That's a given, which is fine. What is the attention, though? Is the attention on the new, or is it on what we bring with us? When we sit, period after period, zazen, what does the attention drift towards? What am I thinking about? How many minutes are devoted to zazen? How many minutes can I afford to devote to not knowing? How long can I sustain myself without the juices of the storyline? Without knowing who I am? Without trying to figure out my life? How many minutes? The memories, emotion, emotional residue, concrete beliefs about who I am, 
and maybe about what I'm going to find through the practice. Concrete beliefs about reality. Maybe hoping that this will clear the path that after sitting for a few hours, I go back to whatever I was doing before and find that it was all solved while I was away for a few hours. And all this, all this is experienced as an inner chatter, a mishmash of thoughts. What I am, what I was, what I want to be, where I am, how much time left, I'm hungry, I'm tired, this again, mishmash of mud. So where's the clarity? In the mud. We try to clear it up. We try to vacuum it all up, sweep it all. As soon as we're done, put the broom away. Dust finds its way back to the shelves, to the floors, to the body. Is that what we're doing? Is that the goal? To be quicker than the accumulating dust. And to hope that at some point there'll be five, ten minutes of a gap between putting the broom away and then accumulation of dust. Maybe. So mishmash of thoughts, emotions, sensations, memories, all of which are in constant, all are in constant flux, changing. It's always changing in front of us, in us, outside. Right? I mean, that's one way to, it's one thing we can agree on. Whatever is going on is changing, is of that nature. And we have verified it many times. Everybody, deep down, everybody agrees that what arises will go down. What is born will die whether it's a form or a thought, doesn't matter. Everything is constantly moving, changing, appearing, disappearing. And again, we agree on that, but do we live by that? Do we trust what is real, what is true? Do we trust it enough to actually wake up to it and move from there? It 
move from what is real, not from what is conceptual. And even that statement, again, what's that mean? What comes into existence always persists for a little while and disintegrates completely. A little while, maybe five minutes or 87 years. It's a little while. Short period of time. And it's gone. It's gone. And after it's gone, what is left? When a person dies, a loved one, we mourn, we're sad, we miss the person. Where is this person? Was this person ever here? And if so, what does that mean? What did that mean? What do we mourn? What do we long for? And what happens if we truly accept that that's just the way things are? It's not personal. Not for, not against. Not with, not without. Just the way things are. With the sadness, with the joy, with the smiles, with the tears, with the mess. And it's a simple truth, but yet we have to venture out for it before it actually manifests in our lives, before we can embody it. And the venturing out is one of the ways we venture out is setting out on this journey we call Ango. It's one of the ways we work on clarifying the truth of things the way they are. Traditionally. Right? That's what has been kept alive and that's what we are keeping alive. Right? Ango offers the opportunity to engage the Buddha Dharma more deeply and offers at the same time the opportunity to keep the eyes open. So we can engage the Buddha Dharma. We can open the eyes a little bit, wake up a little bit. Or remain with the eyes shut. And perpetuate delusions about the self, about reality. Now, if this is the first time you engage in an ango, you may feel energized, curious, not knowing what to expect and how to meet it, how you will meet it. And if it's not the first time, you may have different kinds of expectations, fears maybe, 
fear of failing to uphold the commitments. Or maybe expecting to do better than last time. And again, we walk into what is new with a lot of baggage. It really doesn't matter what the baggage or what the bag consists of. There is a backpack and it is full. And it is heavy. It is heavy. This is why when we, are, when we sit in Zazen, we are asked to put down the backpack for a little while. As I've asked you this morning to, to put away what you brought with you. Take a little break from that. And experience the fresh, the new. And try to lean on it. Let it support you. And see what happens. So looking at the next three months, we are presented with equal opportunities to truly break free or remain stuck. So we are entering this together, yet each one of us has to walk through the mud differently, uniquely. Different legs, different body different movement. So it's interesting to enter together knowing that we are supporting each other, but yet the work itself is absolutely unique and specific. Has to be this way. Different stories. Same realization, same Buddha Dharma, different ways we walk. What we're doing together today is raising the intention, raising the intention to work with what shows up, to work with what we brought with us. That we're doing together. And that we're here to help each other with. Raise and sustain, maintain the intention to not use those three months to go deeper into delusion. Because that's also, again, that is a possibility. I think we've all seen that. Those of us who have engaged in Ango before. We set out those great intentions and then at the end we look back and well, like Keiichi mentioned last week, we have to maybe be sensible about the commitments we take on because we commit to land on the moon. And then after three months, we realize that, uh, yeah, we're not quite there. 
So what kind of intentions are we raising and what am I committing to do? Is it reasonable? Is it doable? Will I be able to maintain it beyond today? So intention, essential ingredient, essential ingredient in creating transformational ongo period. And it should not be taken lightly. This is why we hold an ango entry ceremony. This is why it's in a zazenka, during a zazenka. And we seal it together. So hopefully it vibrates through the core and shakes us up. So the momentum does not die out tomorrow. So Ango, as all the limbs of our practice, is taken up as a way to clarify the fundamental point, to unite with, or to realize unity with, to see things as they are, and not as we imagine them to be, to shine the light of wisdom on the darkness of ignorance. Sounds good, doesn't it? So in the Sutra of Supreme Perfect Enlightenment, Buddha said, what is ignorance? Since beginningless time, all sentient beings have had all sorts of delusion. Like a disoriented person who has lost his sense of direction. They mistake the four great elements as the attributes of their body and the conditioned impressions of the six sense objects. as the attributes of their mind. They are like a person with an illness of the eyes who sees an illusory flower in the sky or a second moon. There is, in reality, no flower in the sky, yet the sick person mistakenly clings to it. It's interesting because we we ask, how do I get rid of, get rid of, get rid of? How do I let go of the self? But the question is actually inaccurate. I cannot let go of that which is not there. The question is, how can I stop inventing? Not how do I get rid of, there's nothing there. That's why it's so frustrating. We're trying to get rid of nothing, of a phantom. And it doesn't work. Of course it doesn't work. But as the Buddha said, we're upside down. That's why it's so radical. We don't even ask the right questions at the beginning. So he keeps going, he says, because of the mistaken clinging, this person is not only deluded about the intrinsic nature of the empty space, but also confused about the arising of the flower. 
Because of this false existence to which she clings, she remains in the turning wheel of birth and death, aka the wheel of samsara. Hence, this is called ignorance. It's a very convincing ignorance because you look up, you see a flower, and what do you mean there's no flower? Look! Look! Can't you see? I see a flower! Who are you to tell me there's no flower? What do you know? And that's what we have to verify for ourselves. Is there a flower there? Well, which, who's looking and whose eyes are these? Are we actually looking at the sky? Are the lights on? It's not surprising that we keep encountering the same challenges. When we're not looking at what's happening, we keep looking at what we bring with us. Well, obviously, we're going to encounter the same thing. How could it not be the same thing? When you look at the fresh and the new, you won't see that. But you won't see yourself. You won't know who you are. And you will feel lost. You will feel resistance, of course. You would not want to come to a Zazenkai or a Sishin or just to sit with a Sangha. And it will be absolutely excusable, justifiable, supported by facts of life. Not now, not today, not me. Hence, this is called ignorance. Words of the Buddha. This ignorance has no real substance. He said, it is, this is like a person in a dream. Though the person exists in a dream, when the dreamer awakens, there is nothing that can be grasped like an illusory flower in the sky that vanishes into empty space, one cannot say that there is a fixed place from which it vanishes. Why? Because there is no place from which it arises. There is nothing there to begin with. In the dream, yes. And the dream feels real. Now, people, situations to work with, Emotions arise, of course, intense emotions arise, sometimes so intense that they wake us up. That would be nice. And it feels very real, and then we wake up, it's like, what was that? Where is Sarah, Joseph? Maybe downstairs in the kitchen, go look for them. Or wait till night comes, and then I can... Revisit them. Hang out with them again. My people, my bodies. And again, it's a, it's a shame, it's a pity to spend decades or a lifetime sleepwalking. 
Then he said, it means the non-arising. It means the non-arising. All sentient beings deludedly perceive birth and extinction. Birth and death. From that, from that which does not arise or vanishes, we experience arising and vanishing. We've always been there. From being there, we experience the dream. From the land of awakening, we live as if sleep. Hence, this is called the turning wheel of birth and death. One who practices complete enlightenment realizes that birth and death are like an illusory flower in the sky. Thus, there is no continuous of birth and death, and no body or mind that, can, that is subjected to birth and death. Non-attachment. This non-existence of birth and death and body and mind is so not as a consequence of contrived effort. It is so because it is so. Not because we create it. We can only create an illusion. Reality is just fine. It says it is so by its intrinsic nature. Do whatever you want. Fundamentally, it will never change. Realize it. Don't realize it. It's not changing. It's fine. Which is the first of the Eightfold Path, the right understanding. Again, the beginning. Right understanding. Right understanding actually equals right effort, which Keiji talked about last week. Only through right understanding there is right effort, and right effort sustains right understanding. The non-dual. If there is no right understanding, we work too hard. We tighten the string too much, and then it snaps. If there is no right understanding, we slack off. We become drowsy. We go to sleep. We go deep and deep and deep and deeper into the dreamland. This is the awareness of their non-existence is like empty space. That which is aware of the empty space is like the appearance of the illusory flower. Even that which is aware. However, one cannot say that the nature of this awareness is non-existent. Eliminating both existence and non-existence is in accordance with pure enlightenment. Both existence and non-existence.
you cannot say that there is nothing there, but at the same time you cannot say that there is something there. Things are not there as they are, nor are they otherwise. That's the meaning. It's not choosing between form and emptiness, between this or that. It truly is things as they are. So ignoring the intrinsically empty nature of all things, we fall asleep into a deep dream in which there is a separate entity we call me. And of course, in this dream, every interaction appears to be in direct relation to this imagined hero. Me and. That and me. This in relation to the center, which is always me. Without that, the dream falls apart. And every reaction, every reaction is calculated based on a sense of self-preservation. The dream provides optimal conditions for the birth of gain and loss, birth and death. Samsara. As we try to navigate our way through what seems to be real. And as long as we believe our perceptions of what we see or hear, we are totally at the mercy of what is seen or heard. That's why the Buddha said, those who seek for me in form do not see me. Those who seek for me in sound do not hear me. And it doesn't mean that what we hear or see is false and needs to be ignored or rejected. All it means is that we should not assign a self to what is heard or what is seen. And when we do not assign a self, we no longer perpetuate a dream. When there is no self attached to what happens, then what happens is allowed to be free, fresh, new. Never before. When, when there is a superimposed self slapped onto, what do we see? The self. We see the self and what the self thinks about what is being seen. We are the obstacle. Or what we create as we is the obstacle. Which is the good news, isn't it? Because you have full access to what you need to work with or work on. Not just for the next three months, but for the rest of your life. Full access.
So not assigning yourself to forms, sounds, sensations, emotions, thoughts, to anything. It's not that there is no feeling of sadness. It's just that inherently it is selfless. Or feeling of joy. Again, it is inherently selfless. There's no diminishment with sadness and some kind of becoming bigger and greater with joy and success and whatever. Only the illusion is afraid of and running towards. Only in the dream from which we are here to awaken. Stop perpetuating defensive reactivity, self-loathing, pride. All those just raise walls and set up divisions lead to hatred, conflicts. And all in the name of self-concerned falsehood. Keeps the dream going and keeps the dreamer asleep. When we assign ourselves to a constantly changing reality, everything that is false appears to be true. And the dream feels real. But when we subdue the temptation to identify with what happens. Everything is perceived directly as it truly is. And that's the work, right? To subdue the temptation, to assign a me to what I see, what I hear, what I think, what I feel, what I want, what I don't want, and on and on and on. To this, to all the mess. There's a saying, there's a phrase, it was like putting eyebrows on chaos. That's what that is, to put eyebrows on chaos, is to assign ourselves to the mess. Yeah, it's messy. So what? It's just life. It's not personal. But it feels like that. True. So don't assign yourself to that feeling. Same advice. No owner, no ownership. Introduction says, don't disregard your very own spirit and bury your family treasures. The last line. Which is a very important line because this is when we do disregard our very own spirit and buried family treasure, as it is called, we go against our true nature. We defile the Buddha by creating yourself, we defile the Buddha. 
by reacting defensively, we defile the Buddha. By, by assigning yourself to pride, feelings of pride, we defile the Buddha. Which is only, only means to go against what we really are. So let's please not put Shakyamuni there as an image of what we are going against. It's not that. It's just who we are now. What we are here to awaken to. So do not disregard your very own spirit and bury your family treasure. It means do not turn away from your intrinsic nature. Do not sustain yourself on false conceptions. It doesn't work. As in the phrase, paper cakes will not satisfy one's hunger. Why we walk around so hungry, never satisfied, Stomachs are full, yet there is still a sense of hunger. There's not a place to put the food anymore. We puke, eat again, puke, eat again. Never feeling satisfied. You know, a dream, as real as it may feel, and as personal as it may be, can never substitute the experience of, or the richness of everyday life. With the mess, with the chaos, far better than a dream. Anything that we encounter is far better than a dream. But again, it doesn't feel this way. So we run away from it to the dream, to the imagined. So this koan brings up the statement of the Buddha. As I now see, all sentient beings, everywhere, at all times, are endowed with the Tathagata's wisdom and virtue. Because of deluded thoughts and attachments, they do not realize it. They turn away from their intrinsic nature, they bury the family treasure. In commenting on this, on these first words of the Buddha, Master Kingling said, sentient beings contain natural virtues as their substance and have the ocean knowledge as their source. Beautiful, poetic. But when forms change, the body differs. And when feelings arise, knowledge is blocked. It is like a person with appearance of grateful virtue and wisdom who sees himself as poor, sick, and suffering in a dream. This is the change of form. He does not see his original body. This is the differing of the body. He takes it to be his own body. This is feelings arise. That's how it develops. 
Actually, that's what we have to get in touch with, encounter in Alzazen. Stop churning the pot over and over again and then see how it develops, how dreams fall and manifest. That's how we assign a self. Like a person who sees himself as poor and sick and suffering in a dream. And he says, this is called the change of form. He does not see his original body. This is the differing of the body. He takes it to be his own body. This is feelings arise. He does not trust his own body to be endowed with great virtues and qualities. This is knowledge is blocked. The light of wisdom does not penetrate at this point. It is all over, everywhere. We have access to it, yet it does not penetrate. And we live as if in darkness. Knowledge is blocked. When feelings arise, knowledge is... This does not mean be like a robot or don't feel. All it means, again, is to not assign a self to a feeling. That's all. All we need to do, in fact, when we do that, it's easier to see that feelings arise and subside. And actually they subside quicker. Allow, allow it all to happen. Any thought, any feeling, let it. Just don't own it. It has nothing to do with you. Your life has nothing to do with you. How great is that? If we realize it. And it's available to all. You know, when we turn away from what we are, all directions appear to be blocked. It doesn't take long to encounter a wall and blame it for being there. As he says, everyone is endowed with this virtue because everything is of the same nature. You know, so to turn towards our true nature means to turn towards everyone and embrace all things. Embrace fully, animate, inanimate, likes, dislikes. And when we awaken to unity, we also awaken to a great responsibility of being of service to others. Or anything, to be of service, just to be of service. What else? It's just being service. Not me being of service. What else is there? And it's not a chore. This responsibility is not a chore. It is recognized as natural expression of a human being. Again, what else would I do? Where else would I go? 
going and coming, always at home. Alone and with others, always at home. The Tathagata means suchness or thusness. All are endowed with this. It's another way, it's another one of those names given to the Buddha. Suchness, thusness. Tathagata's wisdom is the wisdom of living in accord with things as they are. Or wakeful living. Again, it's only possible when we realize that everyone is included. Those who we think are nasty too. They're all included. No gap means no gap. Return to oneness means realizing oneness. So, because we are identified with thoughts, as the Buddha said, attached to false views, because of that we remain asleep and do not realize suchness. Everyone is included. There's lots more to say, but I'm going to have to wind this down so we can sit again and eat. But I'd like to finish with What the Buddha taught his son Rahula and all of us. The practice of the four immeasurables, which ties very well with the theme for this anger, humility. The Buddha said, Rahula, practice loving kindness to overcome anger. Loving-kindness has the capacity to bring happiness to others without demanding anything in return. Loving-kindness. Practice compassion to overcome cruelty. Compassion has the capacity to remove the suffering of others without expecting anything in return. Practice sympathetic joy to overcome hatred. Sympathetic joy arises when one rejoices over the happiness of others and wishes others well-being and success. Practice non-attachment to overcome prejudice. Non-attachment is the way of looking at all things openly and equally. This is because that is. Myself and others are not separate. Do not reject one thing only to chase after another. I call these four immeasurables. Practice them and you will become a refreshing source of vitality and happiness for others. So this is our joint commitment individually, uniquely. This is our joint commitment to the Buddha Dharma for the next three months, for the rest of our lives. But for the next three months, 
to take that and deepen it and embody it. And then, when we do, humility is, there's not even a need to say the word humility because all that is left is that. Humility is not a concept. Humility flows out of right understanding. In fact, right understanding is none other than humility. It's just the way we function. We say humility because we, we reside in a dream and in that dream there are those who are humble and there are those who are arrogant. But in reality, there is no gap. Even there, there is no gap. Those who are humble and those who are arrogant are the same, of the same nature. All is one. So, the practice of humility is, as I mentioned in one of the emails, is a monumental task. Not because we can't look humble. It's easy to look humble. We can become very arrogant about being humble. Or very humble about being arrogant. You choose. So to really practice it is to go to the beginning, to the first words of the Buddha. All, everybody is fundamentally endowed. True wisdom.